The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Today we have a special guest, Rick Hansen, Dr. Rick Hansen, by the way. He's a neuropsychologist, and he's written some great books. He's the author of Buddha's Brain, The Practical Neuroscience of Happiness, Love, and Wisdom, and most recently, Just One Thing, Developing a Buddha Brain, One Simple Practice at a Time. Rick, welcome to the show. Thank you, Cheryl. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you here. Where are you? Where are you? Where are you today? I live just north of San Francisco, in uh, very beautiful weather today. Oh, nice, nice. So spring has sprung, huh? Yes. So you must be somewhere near the Stanford campus. Are the trees in bloom? Oh, actually, I live north of San Francisco, so uh, I live in what's called Marin County. Uh, in the old days, it was the land of uh, peacock feathers and hot tubs and, you know, <laughs> rock and roll parties. Uh, these days, it's the land of busy people, uh, many of them driving SUVs with kids in the back. Uh, and yet, we live on the edge of open space. We have deer in our backyard if I oh, open the, the fence for them to come in. And uh, it's really a very lucky uh, situation in which mm, we live. That's really great. Yeah. So, um, you, you teach at Berkeley, is that correct? I'm an affiliate of the Greater Good Science Center at UC mm-hmm. Berkeley, so I'm not an official tenure track professor, to be clear about that. Uh, but the Greater Good Science Center, and you may mm-hmm. have had uh, Dacher Keltner on, is very involved in practical applied research, which mm-hmm. I participate in to some extent, about how to take this great knowledge that's really brewing, that you know, you talk about so well, uh, and apply it in a real-world situation. So that's been a long-standing issue of mine, both as a psychologist and a meditation mm-hmm. teacher. And I guy I've been married a long time with two young adult kids. <laughs> in the trenches. So understanding how the brain works has been something you've been curious about for a long time since you have mm-hmm. two kids. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So well, let, let's talk about that for a minute, the, mm-hmm. how you became <clears throat> curious about how the yeah. brain works. Well, I think like a lot of people, uh, you know, cue the violins, it goes back to childhood. And uh, I grew up in a nice situation, but there was a lot of uh, unnecessary unhappiness uh, in my family, in our neighborhood, in the school, out in the world of adults I watched through the eyes of a child. And I, I really wondered, I think like a lot of people do when they're young, does it really, really have to be this way? And, and I got very engaged with that question. And so then fast forward 20 years, you know, I'm coming out of college at the time of the human potential movement, uh, lots of great things going on there in the mid-'70s. And um, I encountered at that point the contemplative traditions of the world, and I thought, oh, my God, these people have an X-ray uh, vision into the human psyche and soul and what could be done to you know, not create so much unnecessary unhappiness. Mm-hmm. 
so that that was when I began meditating back in 1974. And uh, my own background in the world's traditions is mainly in Buddhism, but you know I'm very conversant with the other ones. And it's interesting too that Buddhism, uh, which is basically agnostic, um, has had the most transfer uh, or crossover with Western science. So fast forward another 20 years to about 10 years ago, and um, I began uh, getting very, very interested in how to apply what was being learned in brain science. I'm a psychologist. That's my license. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I work in the trenches with real people. How to apply what's being learned in brain science, Mm -hmm. uh, informed by ancient contemplative wisdom, brought into uh, everyday situations where we're trying to not suffer and instead feel happy and we're trying to uh, be patient and not get so stressed and not be so haunted by our, mm. by our history and, and also uh, sustain a vision of, of, of the positive possible future um, out into the world. How do you actually do that? So when you bring together the insights of ancient wisdom with modern, hardcore bench neuroscience, it gives you an incredibly powerful toolbox. And that's been my life's work right now. That sounds deep and broad. And my guess is there's a lot of different directions we could take this conversation. Um, You know, there's been a lot of... um, what I call kind of academic research around the brain that Mm -hmm. is suddenly um, popular, right? Yeah. And what do you think, why did we make this kind of right turn into um, Mm -hmm. such a keen interest into this and this method and in this way, um, kind of looking at the, you know, how the brain actually functions? Right. I think there's, you could say in... To use the language, there's a, if you will, uh, there's an inside-out answer and then an outside-in answer. I'll, I'll do the uh, outside-in answer first because mm-hmm. uh, the one that really counts is the inside-out one. So from the outside-in, it's like there's a critical mass. You know, I think a little bit back to the alchemists in the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. These really smart men and women who are trying to figure out why do you pour two liquids together that are clear and they turn bright yeah, red? Right. Like, what? You know, yeah. well, how do you turn lead into gold? And so they mm. developed all these elaborate theories. Mm-hmm. But the truth was they just didn't have enough factual information. And then it took, you know, years to go by and, and various inventions. And then chemistry started to really become mm-hmm. powerful and, and biology and biochemistry as well. And now genetics and DNA and all the rest. Okay. Well, in the world of brain science, which is really a baby science, the mm-hmm. body of knowledge and neuroscience science about the three pounds of tofu-like tissue right between your ears mm-hmm. has doubled in the last 20 years. We know twice as much today as we did roughly, you know, in 1990, and which is really remarkable if you think about it. So there's been a kind of critical mass of information that's now finally developed enough to be really, really useful. So that's the outside-in answer. But the inside-out answer, I think it's really interesting. There's a kind of intimacy that happens with yourself when you begin to realize that the sounds you're hearing, the sound of my voice, the sights you're seeing, the sensations of the chair on your tush, your hopes and dreams, joys and sorrows, all of that is being produced in its final common pathway, moment to moment, in ways that we don't really yet understand by those three pounds of tofu right between your ears. Mm-hmm. There may well be a transcendental that's outside the naturalist frame. I personally think there is and all the rest of that. Mm-hmm. But inside the materialist naturalist frame of Western science, bottom line is the brain. And when mm-hmm. you kind of get that, you it feels both 
ooh, <laughs> and awe, you know, because you go, wow. And then if I could just get more influence over mm-hmm. what Sherrington called the enchanted loom that's weaving moment to moment our experience, if I could get more influence over it, I wouldn't feel so anxious. I wouldn't lose my temper. I'd have more confidence. I'd be willing to dare greatly. I'd be willing to, to not lose my nerve. I, I wouldn't feel so pushed around. I'd be happier. Uh, I'd have more profound insight. I'd be freer, really, as I go forward in life. And so to me, that's really the opportunity. Well, you know, that's really interesting. I, and When you said early in the show, huh? you used the phrase unnecessary happiness. That you unhappiness. Said, yeah. Unnecessary unhappiness. Unnecessary yeah. unhappiness, um, yeah. Um, in life as a kid, and as I look around the world today and think about, you know, how that exists a lot. Yeah. Um, and yet there is so much attention being paid to um, some of these contemplative methods, and more people are meditating, more people are doing yoga, more people are um, thinking about um, the bigger questions, what's it all about. Mm-hmm. And, you know, is it is it that there is more unnecessary unhappiness, or do you think that yeah. we're just more aware of it, or I mean, has, has it really changed things? Right. I, it's a complex question, and um, I mean, one way to answer it, or to think about it, I think, is it's sort of like, would you trade your problems for that of another person? And I think, frankly, a lot of people would love to have my problems. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. In other words, mm-hmm. so put it in terms of the world, would we rather have the problems, the total package of strengths and weaknesses in the world today, or the total package of strengths and weaknesses in the world just 30 years ago when Reagan was mm-hmm. president at the height of the Cold War, yeah. uh, and when uh, women were treated, for example, in third world countries, on average, a lot worse than they are today, which is mm-hmm. far, far, far from perfect. So I, I don't, I'm not, I'm a realist, you know, I'm pretty informed about world events and so forth. I'm not trying to look at the world through rose-colored glasses. Yeah. On the other hand, it's a complex picture. So in this complex picture, then, I think there are different ways to answer this question. I mean, at the level of, you know, kind of out there in terms of things like global warming or the banking system worldwide or the, the you know, the, uh, basically uh, um, the differential in terms of the wealth of the top 1% and the rest of the 99%. I mean, that's a whole conversation. It's a little bit above my pay grade. You know, I have views about it and I vote my views as a citizen, but as a professional, it's my my domain. What is my domain now is neuropsychology, this brain. We've got 7 billion brains on the planet, and this is a brain that's a Stone Age brain. It evolved over 600 million years of evolution of the nervous system in the larger context of 3.5 billion years of life. You know, it's been shaped and finely honed to adapt to hunter-gatherer life, you know, as a mammal, a primate, a hominid, and now a human. And that lifestyle where you live with 70 to or so people, uh, you spend your entire life usually within 100 miles or so of your birthplace. Uh, if you meet a stranger, there's a good chance that stranger is a lethal enemy. Uh, you mm. are exposed to pain and famine routinely. Mm. Women routinely died in childbirth. The in a hunter-gatherer environment, the infant mortality rate is about five out of six kids do not make it to their sixth birthday. I mean, it's a really intense time. Yeah. And so then you fast-forward that to modern life. Well, the good news is we have stuff like pain control and the rule of law in much of the world, and I'm a fan of ESPN and the Internet and refrigeration. <laughs> but on the other hand, we evolved 
to spend most of our time living life at the pace of a walk. Hanging out, you know, it usually takes about four hours a day to take care of your bodily needs in a hunter-gatherer mm. culture. We spend most of our time yakking, napping, making love, doing religion, you know, staring at the fire, howling at the moon with our friends. That's very different from the high-stress, high-paced, multitasking, chronic, mild to moderate stressors that characterize the modern lifestyle, which is absolutely unnatural mm. in terms of the template that evolved for millions and millions of years. So mm-hmm. we have a mismatch. The good news is we know a lot more about the brain. The good news is we have stuff like modern medicine. The bad news is that the daily lifestyle of a typical person, frankly, including me, and I suspect maybe you or at least a mm-hmm. lot of your listeners, is at odds with this evolutionary template. We're not going to go live on a commune in Oregon mm-hmm. somewhere and grow blueberries or something illegal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that said, if we do not take charge of this caveman, cavewoman brain we've got and guide it to a better place, I do fear for the future for humanity. Mm. Well, you know, what is it that got us to this place where we really, we as as humans, um, believe that we can do all this? I mean, you know, I, I, I agree. Yeah. I, what I see going on is crazy, and we all, mm-hmm. everybody that I talk to says this is crazy, and says, "Well, I have too much going on. Well, yeah. you know, and I never yeah. have a minute. And oh my gosh, my kids are so overscheduled. But you know, I make sure that they have enough to do. And uh, I mean, we hear this everywhere, yeah. and we try to do things like oh, stress management, etc. And but how did we as humans decide that this is okay? Right. Well, I think you know. I, I know we're going to come up on a break here pretty soon, so maybe I'll give you a headline. Of, I've tried to answer that question in a deep way. In other words, <laughs> yeah. you know, I'm not saying my answer is a good one, but uh, you can kick the tires and decide for yourself. Uh, I've tried to think about why does that happen at the level of the brain. In other words. Um, historically, people have asked, why do we, what, what are the causes of suffering and happiness? And they didn't know anything about the underlying biology of the body, the hardware, if you will. Mm-hmm. So all they could do is engage, what are the mental causes of suffering and happiness, right? Mm-hmm. But we're now beginning to be able to get answers to what are the underlying neural causes mm-hmm. of suffering and happiness? And then how can we use the mind to change the brain? to change the mind for the better because whatever you think and feel routinely is changing the structure of your brain. So, the, you know, there's a traditional mm-hmm. saying the mind takes its shape from what it rests upon. Right. If you rest it routinely on X, you get more X. You on Y, you get Y. Well, the update is because of what's called experience-dependent neuroplasticity, the way the brain changes structure based on what we routinely pay attention to and think and feel and hope and dream. Well, you can deliberately target the underlying circuits, if you will, of what you want to cultivate, like happiness and love and wisdom and strength and joy, you can pay attention to the things that will stimulate those neural substrates and then gradually strengthen them over time. Because in the famous saying from neuroscience, neurons that fire together wire together. In other Mm -hmm. words, to repeat, you can use your mind to change your brain, to change your mind for the better. And that's what I... uh, you know, I'm very, very interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, if I have a minute, I'll tell you my idea to your to your question, or should we take a break first? Well, you know what? Why don't you go ahead? I'll, we can stretch okay. this one. Here's the, here's the quick headline. Bottom line, 
the brain evolved in three stages, right? Reptile, mammal, primate, okay? Which really means brainstem, subcortex, cortex, like the three floors of a house. Kind of okay. sounds complicated, but we can get that. Three floors right. of a house. Three floors of a house. We got an inner lizard, we got an inner mouse, and we got an inner monkey. All right. Now, <laughs> as those yeah, little and so critters, are, they, are they on different floors of the house? Yeah, that's exactly right. The little lizard lives on the first floor, the, rat, the, the mouse. I like rats, but a lot of people get squeamish, so I call it a mouse. <laughs> the mouse lives on the second floor. The monkey lives on the third floor. Okay. Okay. As the house of the brain was built, to make room for the, you know, the lizard, the mouse, and the monkey, uh, three needs evolved as well. Our three fundamental needs are to avoid harms, approach rewards, and attach to others. And as the house of the brain was built out, uh, the, it became more and more effective at meeting those needs, which are loosely associated with each of the three floors of the house. This is a simplification, but it's a way to understand something that's pretty complicated, which is the brain. Okay, so you got our three needs. We yeah. have to stay away from trouble, avoid harms. That's the threat system in the brain. We've got to go get the carrot, right? We've got to get the goodies, right. the reward system of the brain. Right. And we've got to attach to others, whether it's in a primitive way, like a fish or a worm, mm-hmm. or in a more sophisticated way, like a mouse or a mm-hmm. little squirrel, or a very sophisticated way, like a monkey or a human being. That's the attaching system, the social system of the brain. Okay, so you got those three needs? Right? Absolutely. And those needs operate all day long. This is a very, for me, useful model. Now, good news, bad news. The brain has two ways to meet those needs. It has two settings. It's like the green setting and the red setting. When we experience from the inside out in a deep way that our needs are met, the brain defaults to its resting state, its home base. It's called the responsive mode. I call it the, it's the green zone, if you will, where we feel basically where the body refuels and repairs itself. We're just kind of relaxed. And the mind, in three basic words, in terms of those three systems, avoiding, approaching, and attaching, is colored by a fundamental sense of peace, contentment, and love. Mm-hmm. Peace in the avoiding system, contentment in the approaching system, love in the attaching system. That's not yet complete enlightenment, but it's a very good foundation for it. That's our resting state. That's the green zone. That's where we're supposed to stay most of the time. Then we have the other setting of the brain, the fight-or-flight reactive setting of the brain, the red zone that activates when we feel that one of those needs is not being met, mm. and we kick into um, burning bodily resources faster than they're replenished. Long-term building projects like strengthening the immune system are put on hold, and in three traditional words, the mind is colored by a quality of hatred, greed, mm. and heartache. Mm. And those of you who have a background in Buddhist psychology will track what I'm doing. I'm asking myself, what's the brain when it's in a state of the craving that leads to suffering? Alternately, what can we do to create a brain that is not in a state of disturbance or deficit and therefore in a state of craving, which then leads to suffering and harm? So that's basically it. If you kind of think of it simply, three, you know, three needs, mm-hmm. two settings, and for me, and this is the subject of my next book, I think there's one practice that again and again and again helps reset the brain back to the green zone. And that's the practice of really taking in the good so you experience that your fundamental needs for safety, satisfaction, and connection in terms of those three needs, those mm-hmm. fundamental needs for safety, satisfaction, and connection are actually met. So you engage life 
in this way on the basis of a prior underlying unconditional sense of sort of strength and safety inside in terms of avoiding harms, a fundamental sense of being already full, already fulfilled, uh, there's an enoughness, you come from a sense of abundance rather than scarcity, and in terms of the attaching system, you already feel connected, you already feel liked, you already feel cherished, you already feel loved, and then you go out and engage life on that basis. And to me, that's the opportunity, the bottom line opportunity at the level of the brain is to help a critical mass of human brains, whatever that number is, 100 million, a billion, you know, 3 billion. At some point, there will be a tipping point if we can get a critical mass of human brains set on green, resting Mm. in this responsive mode and undoing the fear and anger that drives so much Mm -hmm. conflict, undoing the chasing of pleasures, the greed that drives everything from global warming to consumerism to a lot of daily stress, chasing your kids from here to there, and also uh, on the basis of an underlying sense of already feeling connected so the circle of us can include the whole wide world. That is no small undertaking, Dr. Hansen. Thank you, ma'am. <laughs> one, one synapse at a time. Well, and <laughs> one we, neuron at a time. One, exactly. One brain we have at more a time. to talk about with Rick Hansen when we come right back. What's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America show or host? For the latest news, visit the iRadio blog at iradioblog.com. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexasaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. What would you do if you knew that you could not fail? The Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basile is a radio forum for some of the world's most influential people in the fields of health, wellness, and human potential. Dr. Pat brings together and introduces visionary scientists and futurists, environmentalists, educators, business leaders, inventors, filmmakers, authors, artists, mystics, and healers who inspire and support individual and collective growth and positive cultural shifts. This award-winning radio show empowers the listening community to be the change they want to see in the world. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific for the Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basile, radio to thrive by. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Estevito. Our special guest today is Dr. Rick Hansen. So, Dr. Hansen... You just gave us quite a lot to think about as we look at how the brain functions and how we have grown from the days of the Stone Age to today and how that brain from way back when, you know, it's still driving us. And, you know, I wonder, you say that if we pay attention to the happiness um, you know, that will reshape our brain and that will then influence our life. 
And as I look around, I see so much fear and so much negativity. And it seems like it's easier to go to the negative side than to remember the happy side. Is that true? That's a great question. Well, it is true. Uh, there's, it's called the negativity bias of your brain, and it arose through evolution for a simple reason. If you think about it, our you know lizard, mouse, and monkey ancestors had to, in effect, you know, get carrots and avoid sticks. But here's the difference. If you don't get a carrot today, in other words, you don't get some food or a mating opportunity or something like that, well, you'll have a chance at a carrot tomorrow. But If you fail to avoid that stick today, a predator or a natural hazard or social aggression inside your group or between groups, if you fail to avoid that stick today, whap, no more carrots Mm. forever. Mm. So that's the difference. Sticks have hazards, have dangers, have much more urgency and impact in terms of Mother Nature's fundamental mission, which is to pass on genes. So... The negativity bias appears in the mind in lots and lots of ways. Uh, for example, negative uh, events are more memorable than positive ones. Um, you know, uh, negative uh, information about somebody, we remember it. You know, uh, it, there's the finding that in relationships, people need at least something like a five-to-one ratio of positive to negative interactions to have lasting love. Uh, or uh, one specific example is deeply um, Consequential, it has huge impact. It's that uh, negative experiences are registered immediately by the brain. You know, once burned, twice shy. Whereas positive experiences use standard memory systems, which means that unless they're incredibly intense, they need to be held in awareness 5, 10, 20 seconds in a row to transfer out of short term memory buffers into long term storage. But how often do we actually do that? How often do we actually savor an ordinary positive experience, whether it's looking at the flowers out the window Mm -hmm. or feeling warm inside our heart because someone's paid us a compliment or we got a load of laundry done or we got a bunch of emails out the door or we had a major milestone? We don't usually stay with it for that critical mass period of time, 5, Mm -hmm. 10, 20 seconds in a row. That means that the positive experience is wasted on the brain. It flows right through the brain like water through a sieve while negative experiences get caught every time and transferred Mm -hmm. to long-term storage. This is the fundamental weakness and problem in most formal programs, whether it's, Mm -hmm. you know, frankly, corporate leadership development Mm -hmm. or psychotherapy or mindfulness training Mm -hmm. or school teachers trying to cultivate character, parents trying to get good lessons into their kids. Uh, The brain is really good at learning from the bad, but bad at learning from the good. And so to me, to sum up, it's like Velcro for the negative, but Teflon for the positive. That's why, to me, it's critically important to do this little practice I call taking in the good, uh, where you basically, it's a four-step process. I use the acronym H-E-A-L for it, HEAL, where basically you stay with a positive experience. You help yourself experience it intensely and fully so it really registers in your memory systems. You know, to use the saying that I quoted previously, neurons that fire together wire together. You want to get as many neurons firing together for this rich, positive experience for 10 or 20 seconds. That's all I'm talking about. So that they really start wiring together and you can compensate for the negativity bias of the brain and level the playing field, which will build up inside you. All kinds of inner strengths like happiness or love, wisdom, resilience, resourcefulness, 
confidence, uh, willpower, motivation, and all the rest of that, and in terms of what we talked about just before the break, can reset the brain to its green zone setting, its responsive mode, where you feel already safe and satisfied and connected as you go out and, you know, dream big dreams and, and help make the world a better place. Mm. You know, as you say that, and I think about, you know, I do meditate and I've practiced Tai Chi and Qigong, and I know that over the years, um, those things, when I'm more consistent with them, um, it's easier to get through the day or it's easier to look at things that may be uncomfortable or that somebody says and make it a noticing. Oh, well, that's interesting that they're falling apart. I don't have to play. Uh And, um, you know, versus when I find myself very stressed or things feel like they're, you know, out of control. And then I do have that response uh, where, you know, I see that as um, harm. I do see that as something that I better remember because, you know, I don't want to do that again. And so when I think about what's going on in the world and how we have become so fear-addicted, when I think about how the news is reported, when I think about um, the movies that are, you know, very popular these days, um, you know, very violent, uh, I, I don't quite understand how we became addicted to that. You mean to the negative? Why yeah. we're so I mean, I understand it? what you're saying about the negativity bias. Oh. And yet, you know, there seems to be this um, escalation at this point. Is that, am I making that up or mm. is that true? Again, I don't know. Uh, you know, you may know the book, uh, The Better Angels of Our Nature, Stephen Pinker's book. And he, like a lot of people, have looked at, like, the rates of violence mm-hmm. in, the, uh, in the world. And generally speaking, the rates of violence have really been falling over the last 100 years, the last 50 years, the really? last 1,000 years. Yeah. Um, you know, we think back on the caveman, cavewoman days, and it seems so kind of rosy, but the truth is that mm. uh, these hunter-gatherer bands competed with each other for scarce resources, mm-hmm. and they would get often very aggressive with each other. Sometimes they would trade, but very often. There was no police system back then. There were no courts. Right, right. It was Lord of the Flies, you know. Right, it was right. the rule of, yeah. And so the average death rate due to violence for males in hunter-gatherer bands is about one in eight men died due to murder, essentially. Mm. Whereas uh, in all the bloody wars of the 20th century, only about, only, about one in a hundred men died mm. due to warfare. So if you think about it, the death rate due to warfare, low-intensity warfare, if you will, between hunter-gatherer bands was about 12 times greater than in all the wars of the 20th century. So I'm not trying to paint a rosy picture. I mean, terrible things are happening right right now as we sit and talk with each other. But um, still, I think on the one hand, globally, there is an improvement. On the other hand, media, as they say in journalism, you probably know the Mm. saying, if it bleeds, it leads. In other words, Mm. that's what we pay attention to. And as our young adult son said quite brilliantly the other day, the real currency of the, of the tw- in the 21st century is attention. 
because that's what um, advertisers are fighting mm-hmm. over. That's what that's what people like you or I, like you or I, who offer intellectual property, if you will, are trying to to get. We're trying to get eyeballs. We're trying to get ears. Right. And um, so we're being bombarded by all these people that want our attention. And whatever is most shrill or most glittering or most frightening is going to compel our attention. And frankly, mm-hmm. fear trumps hope. Um, if yeah. you know. You're sitting in a room and suddenly two things happen. You know, you hear someone singing a lullaby or a, or a gospel, and you also hear simultaneously the fire alarm going off. Yeah. Hello. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What are you going to pay attention to? Right. Uh, a yeah. fire alarm. Exactly. You know, <laughs> let's say you're talking with your partner or your boss or a colleague, and they, in the course of five minutes, they say a hundred things, and one of them is critical. What's <laughs> the one you're going to remember? You know, it's the critical one. So I think that's. You know, what we have to, um, in my view, uh, become more disciplined about inside our own minds. You know, we have to realize that the world is not going to change overnight. But on the other hand, we can change what's going on inside our head. Now, there's this traditional saying, I think about it, it comes from Tibet. Um, It goes like this. It says, the world is covered with thorns and sharp rocks. What should we do? Well, we can either cover the world with leather or we could put on a pair of shoes. And uh, that's those shoes are how we train our own mind and train our own brain to engage the world as it is with the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, see the whole picture while simultaneously not being manipulated by the world, not being pushed around or intimidated by it, uh, not giving up on ourselves or, or other people, and gradually building up strengths inside that we can use to make the world a better place. Mm. I love that. And, you know, I, as I think about that, and I, you know, you work with, as you work with people and different generations, are you finding that there is, that younger generation today is developing a different sense of possibility than maybe previous generations? I'm, I'm, I'm guardedly hopeful uh, if you look at the long-term trend. In other words, the long-term trend has been toward gradual improvement. And in a weird kind of way, it would be grandiose to think that we live in some kind of radically world-changing time. I mean, people have always lived in radically world-changing times. But if you step back, you know, and take the 10-year view, the 100-year view, the 1,000-year view, let alone the 10,000-year view, you can see a process of gradual improvement. So I'm I'm hopeful in that way. Um, And I think second... To go to something you said, I thought it was very interesting. You spoke of the power of practice, doing Tai Chi, doing mm-hmm. meditating, mm-hmm. taking a quiet moment. Some people, that's their one minute of prayer, you know, right. where they just kind of reset. And there's something extremely powerful for about those moments of formal practice. And for some people, it literally it's when they walk the dog, you know, mm-hmm. or they do 10 minutes of practicing golf putting in their man cave, and that's their thing. Hey, whatever your thing is, I'm cool with it. For some people, it's making art, knitting, doing handwork, fine, etc. Um, there's a great place for formal practice. In addition to that, though. What about the other 95 to 99% of the minutes of right. our waking day? Right. You know, right. How do we use those minutes? And that's where the opportunity to take in the good, for me, really shows up. Half a dozen, a dozen, a few dozen times a day, take those 10 to 30 seconds inside yourself to help a good lesson land or help a good feeling sink in or 
help um, a, a quality of strength of heart really register inside yourself. And I think young people, in a funny way, because they've been disenchanted, they've realized there's not going to be, you know, some big thing that's going to change everything. It's not going to be some big movie or some big, you know, band or some big breakthrough or some big presidential election or some big invention. They've seen a lot of that. You know what I mean? So there's a kind of disenchanted, jaundiced view, which I think has taken them to what are we going to do meanwhile? Mm-hmm. What are we going to mm-hmm. do in the grout, if you will, of the mosaic of daily life? What mm-hmm. can we do in an ongoing kind of way to build up positive experiences and positive resources and positive strengths inside ourselves as we go forward um, uh, in daily life? And I think, for me, that's what really interests me a lot. You know, it's the power of little things. And I think mm-hmm. probably because younger people are disenchanted with the purported big things that are going to save yeah. everything. Yeah. The latest, greatest. They've been just, they've seen so many ads. You know what I mean? Every ad says, this is the one thing. Yeah, you know, right. This perfume, this car, <laughs> this vacation, this Viagra, this pill. Yeah, it's going to be absolutely. the one thing, you know? And they've just seen all the one things, and they've had it with all the one things. And they realize it's got to be the everything that adds up day after day, minute by minute, as you go forward in life. You know, another Tibetan saying, if you take care of the minutes, the years will take care of themselves. And I think young people are really focused on the minutes, and that's where, for me, in part, my own interest in how to take in the good in the minutes of everyday life can really pay off big time uh, as the minutes add up to those years. Mm. Well, you have some really interesting approaches to this. Your book, Just One Thing, Developing a Buddha Brain, One Simple Practice at a Time. Um, I loved reading through this because some of these are so simple and, I mean, so simple that I thought, well, yeah, so. Yep, that's right. <laughs> and, and, you know, this is really what you're getting at, is, is that it doesn't have to be, um, you don't have to sit for an hour of meditation in order to begin to make changes. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious about some of these. In our next segment, I want to talk about, um, I want you to call out a few of these. Sure. The other question I have, though, is, is at what point do we reach a tipping point? So when we come back, we'll talk about that. We'll be back with Rick Hansen. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Voice America Network proudly presents the Catherine Zox Show for women, men, children, and families. Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern to the Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America channel. 
Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at Voice America and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito, and we're speaking speaking with Dr. Rick Hansen today, neuropsychologist and author of Buddha's Brain, The Practical Neuroscience of Happiness, Love, and Wisdom. So, Rick, um, in our last segment, we were talking about, you know, how if you just take a little time, you can change the brain, and we needed to let the happiness moments in. We need to let the good experiences in. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah? Okay, so well, what I started to jump on you in, in there so quickly, but I was excited, I guess. So anyway, the thing I think it's useful to appreciate is that uh, the little things really add up to something big over time. Mm-hmm. In other words, we it's usually lots of little things that take us to a bad place. We all know that in our heart. Um, and um, it's going to be lots of little good things that take us to a better one. The question is actually how to do that. Mm-hmm. And the brain changes really quite quickly, but it also needs some repetition. So um, it's easy to underestimate the power of little things. But mm-hmm. it, on the other hand, it's the little things that are under our control. Um, as, they, you know, as they say in the gym, what's the most important exercise? Mm-hmm. Well, it's the one you'll actually do. Right? So, as we're so busy, uh, I find that the idea of just one thing, you know, something in the back of your mind you're working on these days or some little practice you're using as you go through the course of your day, mm-hmm. then, the, then the day becomes this beautiful, um, nurturing opportunity to reshape yourself to a better place mm-hmm. over the 10, 12, 16 hours of wakefulness you have, you know, in a single day. So I want to, if I could, talk about the actual practice of taking in the good. Absolutely. um, And then I want to apply it, if I could, to a workplace environment. So if you think about it, we're, you know, so I'll use the acronym HEAL, Mm H-E-A-L. If you want to build up um, positive things inside yourself, right, how do you actually do that? Well, you got to get them into your brain. Well, how do you get something into your brain? You need to, first of all, activate the positive state. You need to have a positive experience in the first place, either because you're already having one and you kind of notice it, right, or um, you do something actively to create it. So Mm -hmm. now you're having a positive experience. So to use an example, let's say uh, you're in a workplace environment and you accomplished something uh, or uh, people were acknowledging of you and you have an opportunity to have a sense of worth or confidence Mm -hmm. or accomplishment, right? Mm -hmm. So you're having that experience, and now it's activated. Well, once it's activated, you've got to install it. 
And that goes to the second, third, and fourth steps of the HEAL um, acronym, H-E-A-L. And so a lot of people, instead of letting themselves, they're having a positive experience, right? But they don't let it last. They move on really quickly to the next thing for lots of reasons. Maybe they're busy or they're distractible, but often there are other reasons, like feeling that they don't deserve to feel good. Or if they feel good, they'll lose their edge. Or if they're, let's say, a woman, their job is to make others feel good not to make mm-hmm. themselves feel good. Mm-hmm. And there are a variety of other reasons as well. So it helps to really be a friend to yourself, to get on your own side, to treat yourself like you would treat a, a friend mm-hmm. because you would wish for your friend that the positive experience uh, really landed inside her and grew gradually over time inside her. You would want that for your friend. Well, why not want that for yourself? Mm-hmm. So that then takes us to the E letter of enrich in the acronym of HEAL, the four steps of taking a good. You want to let this experience last. You want to help it become as intense as possible. In my example of feeling accomplished or worthy or successful um, at work, let's say. So you're going to be more motivated to try hard in the future. So it's really smart to help your workers and your, your colleagues take in the good because they're going to be easier to work with, and also they're going to be motivated and creative and confident and happy uh, as they go forward, you know, at work. So second step, E for enrich, you stay with it, you let it land, you just stay with it. Third step, A, absorb. You help this positive experience sink in. You prime memory systems in the brain. In other words, by maybe visualizing that it's going into you like water into a sponge or you just simply know somehow it's becoming a part of you with children uh, because this is a great practice for kids. I'll talk about putting a jewel in the treasure chest of the heart. Okay, That's Mm -hmm. the E step. And then the optional fourth step. If you want to, is to link a positive and a negative experience together. In other words, if you're aware of a positive experience prominently, like a very strong sense of accomplishment in my example, or confidence or worth, I got this done, I weathered the storm, I spoke up in the meeting, they liked my idea, my boss did not kill me, you know, whatever, right? (laughs) Um, You're having that experience. Simultaneously, if you bring up maybe some old pain, especially if it's matched, like old feelings of inadequacy or of anxiety about your performance or feeling humiliated in junior high school. Who wasn't humiliated one time or another Mm, in junior high? Um, And if you're aware of both of those at the same time, well, since neurons that fire together, wire together, the positive will start to associate with the negative. And then when you stop thinking about the negative and it goes back down the memory hole to be reconsolidated in neural storage in the very dynamic process, it will take some of those positive associations with it. So those are the four steps of taking in the good. Have, enrich, absorb, and optionally, if you want, link. Sounds a little complicated, but in reality, we all know how to do it. It's just the doing of it. You know, half a dozen times a day, half a minute or less at a time, Mm -hmm. three minutes a day. I think just about anybody can do that. And I've never seen a person who started doing this in a conscious way, who didn't experience a dramatic change, usually within a matter of days, certainly within a matter of weeks. It just fascinates me. I think, you know, the whole concept of our mind Mm -hmm. being separate from our brain, Mm -hmm. and yet thoughts come from our mind, right? Yep. Yep. And then influence you know, the physiology. Yep. It is wild. I think this is a 
very deep issue in science and philosophy. That uh, I think a simpler way to understand it is think about mind broadly as information, like software. Mm-hmm. Okay, so as information flows. It needs to be represented by hardware, something physical. So we have information which is immaterial. A sight is immaterial. Uh, a feeling is immaterial. You, the experience itself is immaterial, but right. it's represented in ways that are not deeply understood yet, but we're clear that it requires some underlying neural activity. So mental and neural activity occur at the same time together. Mm-hmm. They're like flows, but underlying neural activity that's repeated changes neural structure. So that's the bridge between the mind and the body. The, the feelings, our thoughts, um, but let's say our positive experience of being praised by our boss and feeling accomplished and motivated to, to you know, to try harder next time to speak up more and all the rest of that to work harder. Mm. You know, that's, that's an immaterial experience, but it's produced in ways that are not yet well understood by some kind, un, kind of underlying physical process. Mm. And that physical process changes brain structure. Mm. So give us some examples of uh, what mm-hmm. you have in your book, the, just one thing. Mm-hmm. Give, us some, give, give us some examples of, of some of those yeah. things we can do, actually mm-hmm. do, you yeah. know, today while we're sure. you know, going through our day. Right. Well, one I did already, take in the good. Use those four little steps half a dozen times a day, less than half a minute at a time. That's the second of the 52 practices in the book. I set it up so that if you want to, you can have a good year, quote-unquote, <laughs> by doing a practice a week, you know, or just pick one, and that's, the one, that's your one, you know, whatever works for you. So taking the good is very foundational, mm-hmm. and I would suggest that for people. A second thing I would really suggest for people is have compassion for yourself. In other words, um, it doesn't mean self-pity, but it does mean when things are hard, taking a moment to accept your own pain and to bring a a quality of kindness to yourself. Mm. That's, to me, a very powerful one. Another very powerful one that I think is, is really worth doing is take pleasure. Pleasure is so underrated, physical pleasure of all the senses, whether it's a beautiful sight, a lovely sound, a delicious taste, a great smell, a nice touch. You know, pleasure is designed by Mother Nature to take us out of stressful bursts in the red zone and bring us back into the green zone. And I think a lot of people, even though we're surrounded by pleasures, it's, it goes back to your point. We're racing so fast. Mm-hmm. We're so stressed. We're so driven. We're always looking over our shoulder. We're, we're bombarded with threat messages in the media mm-hmm. of various kinds that it's hard to actually let ourselves enjoy the taste of this cup of coffee. Right? Mm-hmm. Or right. the feeling of the warm hand, the warm water on our hands, mm-hmm. or this nice cashmere sweater on our skin, um, or the lovely uh, sight as we look out the window, you know. Uh, okay, that's another good one, and I'll leave you with maybe one last one. Um, I, I'll call it Risk the Dreaded Experience. And this is uh, challenging, but for me, it's Mm. one of the probably top 10, if not top five, personal growth methods I know, and I've been trained in a lot of them, um, where we think about it, you let yourself uh, do something that you're scared to do Mm -hmm. in a well-planned way, and you really take in the good. That's where those four steps, H-E-A-L, come in. You take in the good when you risk the dreaded experience and it all goes well. In other words, maybe you're afraid to speak from your heart. 
Mm. Or maybe you're afraid to stand up and be seen by other people. Or maybe you're afraid to tell other people what you really need or what you really want. Or maybe you're afraid to put your foot down in your family and say, look, everybody, I'm doing way more than my share of housework. It's time for (laughs) you to step up um, in a serious way. Whatever that dreaded experience is, that fences us in. Those are the bars of our prison you know, the dreaded experience that we avoid. Mm-hmm. And, and we often do it quite unconsciously. You know, what comes up, it's like a three-step process. Some natural form of self-expression comes up. Um, then second, there's an associated fear of what would happen if I expressed myself in that way. And then third step, the defense against the self-expression, the shutdown. Mm-hmm. That all goes down usually in a second or two uh, inside the brain. We hardly even notice it, or we maybe notice it in retrospect. So instead... With self-awareness, recognize what is this dreaded experience, and then make a rational choice. Don't mm-hmm. jump off a building. That's a that's appropriate to dread. <laughs> you know what I mean? Don't step in front of a bus. Don't yell at your boss. You know those are appropriately dreaded. But often, most of the time, the stuff we dread to do, you know, when we finally do it, we realize this wasn't such a big deal, and I was successful, and living small based on avoiding the dreaded experience has really, you know, been very costly for me and often for others. So that's my final suggestion, risk the dreaded experience, and then really take in the good when, as it usually does, it goes well. I love that. Rick, this has been so fun to have you here. I I feel like we could go on and on, and I know people are going to want to know more, so how can they learn that? Where can they reach you? Yeah, I think the simplest way is rickhanson.net, rickhanson.net. Um, my website is full of freely offered resources, slides, mm-hmm. sets from workshops I've taught, tons of talks. I, I give almost everything away. Uh, people have to pay for my book on Amazon. It's about 12, 10, 12 bucks, but that's about it. But otherwise, go to my website, rickhanson.net. And if you're interested, I do this little free uh, newsletter. It goes out every week called Just One Thing. It's a mm-hmm. little practice, 72. 2,000 people subscribe to it now. It's pretty nice. And, um, you know, I treat your email address with great confidence. You can always unsubscribe at any time, and I'll never share your email address with anybody. And you can learn more about that little free uh, practice newsletter, Just One Thing, at my website, rickhanson.net. That's perfect. Well, I'm a commitment today to having compassion for myself. I appreciate that very much. Thank you, Rick. Thanks for being here. And we'll have to have you back on Leading Conversations. Great. It'll be a pleasure. Thank you. So remember, everyone, to think big because the world could be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito. Thank you for spending this hour with Cheryl Esposito and Leading Conversations. You can listen live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you have a question or comment for Cheryl, please email her at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S at A-L-E-X-S-A-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G.com. See you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. 
The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 